How do you talk about human potential when for the majority of the history of U.S. black people were, were seen as not quite human or outside of the human? There's a certain assumption, a certain egalitarian assumption in these conversations before that when we talk about humanism or human potential or the superhuman, that we're talking about everybody, that this is a universal concept. In many ways, the category that emerged in modernity about the human was constituted over and against black people as not human. So in other words, you know, how do we understand what, what the human is? It's something that they are not. My hope is, and I am hopeful here, is that these will be fruitful conversations that will change how we even think about the human. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. I want to say by way of introduction that I and all of the other members of the small team who produce Voices of Esalen are dedicated to diversifying the voices who represent our show. We're making a purposeful stance at this moment to dedicate a significant portion of upcoming programming to exploring issues of systemic racism, power, and entrenched privilege with the goal of cultural healing and cross-cultural understanding. To this end, you will hear more from people of color particularly black speakers and leaders. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Finley, associate professor at Louisiana State University, where he teaches a host of courses that center around African-American religious thought and culture, including black religion and film, race in the age of Obama, and black intellectual thought. He's the co-editor of There is a Mystery, Esotericism, Gnosticism, and Mysticism in African-American Religious Experience, and the author of In and Out of This World, Material and Extraterrestrial Bodies in the Nation of Islam. Together we discuss the pitfalls of diversity, including the very real risks of tokenization, UFOs and their relation to African-American culture, and the history of racial terror. He's a brilliant speaker and thinker, so please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Finley. Dr. Stephen Finley, thank you so much for joining us today on Voice of the Vesselin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You are a professor specializing in African-American religious cultures and religious thought. When you apprehend the current cultural moment in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, the awakening of the masses of people to the systemic racism of a country, is there a way to see it through a religious lens? Well, that's a really good question. The work that I do really focuses on race and religion. In fact, some of the current projects that I have ongoing take specifically that approach. I'm currently editing a volume of essays called The Religion of White Rage, White Workers, White Religious Fervor, and the Myth of Black Racial Progress, which is uh, currently under contract with Edinburgh University Press and should be published at the end of the year. And that's co-edited with Pico Manella Gray, who has also been to Esalen, and Lori Latrice Martin, uh, who is at uh, Louisiana State University with me. She's a sociologist. And one of the things that we're arguing in, in that particular book and in those essays is that there's always a relationship between what we call religious fervor and blackness. In other words, we, we want to see not just this current moment, but historically in America, any time that religious movements arise, revival-type movements that particularly focus on white rights uh, and whiteness, it's, it's always in response to perceived black racial progress. And we mm -hmm. want to understand that first and foremost as religious. 
And so one of the ways that we uh, approach it to get there is we want to understand religion not in institutional terms or creedal terms or even theistic ones, but more as religious uh, religion as a way of organizing one's world, as a way of finding meaning in the world, and as a way of locating one's ultimate place in the world. And we argue that that happens first and foremost through racial identities like white. And so we absolutely want to see the current moment as a religious moment. And in fact, that's what we're arguing in the book. We're arguing against those who want to see uh, the current moment symbolized by uh, the election of of Trump uh, and what we would call religious fervor as primarily motivated by race and religion and not economics. So your question is a good one. And our work is heading precisely in that area and in that direction. May I ask, what is your lived experience of this particular historical moment? My lived experience of this particular moment is um, it's, it's a complicated question because I don't, I don't know that I can think of this moment in isolation. Mm. Well, I grew up in Southern California. And in the early 90s, before I left California for, for graduate school, uh, I was in Orange County. Uh, I grew up in Santa Ana, California, and I lived in Los Angeles as a child. And so I was there in the early 90s during the the, the Rodney King uh, matters. And you you Mm. probably remember those. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yes. Around the same time, a young, I believe she was 14-year-old girl by the name of Latasha Harlan was shot and killed at a store in South Central Los Angeles. She was, she was going to pay for an orange juice that she had bought and had the money, and the owner of the store uh, accosted her as if she was trying to steal the orange juice. And the, uh, the proprietor, after accosting her, you know, Latasha Harlan, uh, fought back and then just uh, went to walk out of the store, and the proprietor shot her in the head uh, and was only given six months probation for that. And so not only was I involved in uh, marches for... Rodney King and protests uh, for Rodney King. I was at First A.M.E. Church, for example, the night the community gathered, First A.M.E. Church in, in Los Angeles. You may be familiar with it. And so but I also marched for Latasha Harlan. I've, I've been at this a long time. And as a, as a conscious African-American man, you know, who has tried to live in such a way to make a difference in the world, this moment is not new to me. It's new in the sense that it, it seems so institutionalized and so ensconced in the current, uh, in the state and in their policies and discourses. But, but there's a long history behind this for those of us who are, who are my age so that I don't experience the current moment in isolation, but more as sort of a cumulative effect, what we've always had to deal with. And so to answer the question more directly, it's, it's, it's clearly stressful, very stressful and mm-hmm. exhausting. And, and it's exhausting in a lot of ways because, you know, you have schools now who are, who are putting out diversity statements in response to the killing of George Floyd. And some of that feels like gaslighting to me because we've been saying this, and, you know, as a, as a scholar you know, and writing about it and imploring our university to be more just, to be more inclusive. 
And now all of a sudden they're putting out these statements as if we haven't always been pushing for this, talking about diversity and inclusion. And then there's the, the, the psychic sense that it could be me. So when Trayvon Martin was there, for example, in 2012, I believe was the year, that was really hard for me psychically. And that was really stressful because my sense was, wow, you know, that, again, that could have been me. As many times as I've been pulled over by the police growing up in Southern California. And that's really hard to deal with. And then the last thing is, you know, people mean well, but all the people reaching out and sending texts and emails and calling, how you doing? What's going on? How you feeling? It's incredibly, incredibly exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, yeah, I, I understand that. And, and that kind of brings me to, to my next question as we, uh, as we approach this. And, and, I, and I so appreciate your candor uh, on, the, on mm-hmm. these issues and, and speaking about this amid the, that feeling of exhaustion, because I think that uh, it's discussions like these that can ultimately, you know, educate a listenership that might not apprehend its own privilege. And, and sure. so here's my, que- here's my question. What do you think are the impediments to understanding that can come up for an audience that might not fully apprehend their own privilege within the, a culture that is built on systemic racism? For me, it's a really, it's a really personal one. People just don't believe black people. And that's in part what I meant when I said gaslight, right? It's, it's, it's not as if, as if we haven't been talking about our experience for centuries. And, I'm, you know, I've only been on this earth for half a century. But, but we've been talking about and writing about this experience, as have Native Americans and, and other communities, forever. Hmm. And, you know, the main impediment, impediment, to use a technical term, is an epistemological one or maybe an epistemic one in the sense that there is no truth, right, that has to be legitimated, that has to be accepted as truth that comes from black people. The culture just doesn't receive our experience as truth, and there is no truth, capital T, right, that the culture legitimates from black people. Mm-hmm. And talk about <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> I mean, that's exhausting. Uh, but, it's, but it's also a major impediment. Right? How can we get anywhere when you just don't believe us, no matter what mm-hmm. we say, no matter what you see? The culture is always finding a way to consolidate and to blame black people for their own situation and their own death. So in a certain sense, this moment, which can feel like a watershed moment for others, is feeling in some ways frustrating for you because you have been speaking about this for so long and then suddenly... It's being heard, but not in a way that, that feels affirmative. Frustrating for me and millions of other people. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I appreciate the way you, you stated that. It feels like it's being heard. But, but I, I have to remain skeptical because the appearance of, of, of hearing and being sensitive to these issues is one thing. A material and structural commitment that says you really are here is another thing. And so while I remain somewhat optimistic, I'm very cautiously optimistic. I'm waiting to see what's actually going to happen. Because, again, one of the things that we're arguing in uh, Religion of White Rage is that these 
there, there are cycles to this, right? There are cycles to the perception of black progress or desire for progress that is almost always met with what Martin Luther King Jr. called the white backlash. In other words, you know, you take one step forward, you push two steps backward. And so this moment does feel different, Sam, but I'm cautious, and I still have to see that ultimately this moment is going to be different. As companies attempt to become more diverse, do you feel like there may be a danger of tokenization? Isn't that always the problem of diversity? I mean, I mean, isn't that one of the ways that diversity functions as, as a narrative that can, be, that can be commodified and monetized for the benefit of, of corporations and institutions? that aren't necessarily meaningful in terms of the, the real change that happens. So, so yes, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. At LSU, for example, where I work, uh, without going into uh, too many details about how overlabored and undercompensated I am, if, if you come to my university, my picture's everywhere. I work in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. There's literally a mural in the main office with my picture on it. Students are always emailing me uh, and sending me pictures of, of, of my image framed in a building somewhere on campus and even on websites, uh, you know, because it's the main website, but then there are these other individual school and department websites, websites for departments that I'm not even a part of. I, I'm, I'm on a brochure at LSU, for example, in my own department. So in some ways, that feels exploitative because I'm one of only maybe three African-American male tenure-track, tenured or tenure-track professors in my college. And so while the image does a certain work for the institution because the narratives are, are important for the outside world, the narratives say, of course, this is a space where everybody is welcome. Everybody is valued, a diverse space. We, we respect diversity and inclusion. But when we look at the material effect, they're just not there, right? Does that answer your question? The only rejoinder I would have is that these narratives are important for the marketing of the university, right? So it's tokenization, yes, to use your word. But it also functions more for their benefit. And uh, to, to follow Vico Mandela Gray here, it also functions as a form of theodicy. And this is, this is Vico Gray's insight. We, we write a lot together. What, what Vico argues is that black professors on universities serve the function of signaling that a university is ultimately good, regardless of its, of its material practice. And so in that sense, Vico wants to understand even diversity as a theodicy, which is a theological term. So you ask how it, can this be understood in religious terms, this moment? Mm. Even diversity 
he wants to understand as a religious and theological uh, concern. Yeah, yeah, I, I so appreciate your your insight around the fact that when you mention isn't diversity always being co-opted or always sort of working in another system, I had not thought about it that way. You, of course, you're correct. So let me ask you this. Where do you see S1 located in the context of, of white privilege or white supremacist culture? And, and, and talk to me a little bit about your um, – because you've been to Esalen several times. I have. I have been involved in the Esalen meeting since 2015. And I don't know how many particular meetings that I've attended, probably five or six during that time at least. Um, and I was supposed to be there in May. That was, uh, that was canceled due to the, the pandemic, uh, but has since been rescheduled for uh, May 2021. We hope that happens. Jeff Kreipel, uh, the chair, as you know, uh, the board chair, and uh, uh, Charlie Stang from Harvard have asked Biko Gray and I to think about a proposal for another meeting that actually deals specifically with these, these issues um, to be held at, at Eflin. Uh, Center for Theory and Research. And so the one thing I at least can say about Esalen is they're trying. But again, this is, this is a really complicated issue because when you go to Esalen, it's almost all white. And every meeting uh, that I've attended, I have been the only African American and until the last meeting, the only person of color in these meetings. In the last meeting, there were at least two others. Uh, including Biko Gray. And, and incidentally, the, the two others were also from, uh, did their PhDs at Rice University and were associated with Jeff Crackle. So not to do his horn, but even some of the small things that we, we see happening at Esalen have to do with a lot of his efforts. And of course, of course, Michael Murphy. But, but I want to I back up for a second, because you probably know this history at least as well as I do and maybe better that in the 1960s, uh, Esalen was the center of the human potential movement. Maybe it was even started at Esalen. And are, are you familiar with the, uh, the movement in the 1960s that was called uh, by uh, Price Cobb? The, uh, therapy. So for the benefit of a, a listenership that might not know about uh, Price Cobb's work, would you speak about what racial confrontation therapy is? Well, I'll tell you what I know about. Um, uh, Price Cobb was a psychiatrist. He, he wrote a lot in the 1960s uh, with another psychiatrist, another African-American psychiatrist by the name of James Greer. And one of the most famous books was a book called Black Rage. It was a book that uh, discussed, uh, among other things, the therapeutic relationship between uh, therapists and clients. And one of, the, one of the things, one of the most important things that emerged from the book of uh, Black Rage was this this idea of cultural paranoia. I mean, it's a, it's a unfortunately poor choice of words. But one of the things that, that they argue is that in a therapeutic relationship that, that black clients were being uh, misdiagnosed and misread as, as having a certain paranoia when it comes to black people. And one of, one of the things that they argue was that actually this, this is a... a, a a sort of a life strategy that is rooted in reality, that, that black people actually had reason not to trust white people, given the history of white racial terror 
and, and an unbroken history of violence directed at, at black bodies. And so he was a psychiatrist, psychologist, and a scholar, uh, and they also wrote another really important book called The Jesus Bag uh, and some other work. Racial confrontation therapy was, was just the way it sounds. It was a confrontation group, an encounter group, in which black and white people would get together. And it was, it was, it was just that. It was sort of a, an angry confrontation about what, what might now be called white privilege and racism. And, and those meetings happened at Essen. Well, good. Thank you for kind of giving the, the background around that. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I think that you were sort of getting into like speaking about the human potential movement. Well, I mean, again, Esalen has really been the center of this human potential movement, the Center for Theory and Research, these, uh, these symposia that, uh, in which I participated since 2015 have been all about that. They have centered around the idea, and this is Esalen language here, of extraordinary human capacity and, and anomalous experience, human experiences, so basically the paranormal is what they're talking about there. Uh, but, but, but one of the things that uh, uh, seems to be the goal of this is an expansion of what it means to be human and the notion of the human. Because human beings, again, have these extraordinary capacities that don't always register in scientific or religious categories that are kind of um, antagonistic to both of those. And yet this stuff happens, right? what we call the, the paranormal. But, but these conversations have almost wholly not included the experiences of people of color and especially African Americans. At the same time, I've been involved in these meetings since 2015. And so uh, one of the directions I think that Esalen is trying to go now, at least with TTR, is, is to include more voices about black and race and black experience, which, which for, for me, Sam, is, is different from this conversation about diversity because, because for me it's not just the inclusion of, of black people talking about race and blackness. I actually think there's something significant about the paranormal and human capacity that, that black people have been talking about. In order to understand it, I think they have to be a part of these really critical conversations on human potential. That's where I was going. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the real point I'm trying to make here is I feel hopeful about these meetings and that they're not just the diversity and inclusion <laughs> that, we, that we started uh, discussing when our conversation began. I, I, I think it's more than that. I think that Esalen, as of late, has been incredibly open, not just to having bodies, right, that are diverse, but ideas that are diverse from people who are diverse and how that might even change the very paradigm and conversation about human potential. That's, that's the point that I wanted to make. This isn't just, you know, we'll have uh, a few black people and call ourselves diverse. What, what I think... Uh, Michael Murphy and Jeff Crackle are open to in these conversations is just how these bodies change how we understand human potential, right? Especially 
from people who have always been seen or almost always been seen as outside of the human. How do you talk about human potential when for the majority of the history of U.S. black people were, were seen as not quite human or outside of the human? So our presence and our voices fundamentally change the conversation, right? So it, it's taken it – so the conversation was, was taken for granted all these years, right? There's a certain – there's a certain assumption, a certain egalitarian assumption in these conversations before that when we talk about humanism or human potential or the superhuman, that we're talking about everybody, that this is a universal concept. And the human was never a universal concept. So how can we talk about human potential? In many ways, the, the, the category that emerged in modernity about the human was constituted over and against black people as not human. So in other words, you know, how do we understand what, what the human is? It, it's, it's something that they are not, if that makes sense, right? Mm. Everything that we mm. say about them, right, tells us at least potentially what the human can be because they're not. They're primitive, they're childlike, they're so on, right? And this has been the conversation for the last few hundred years about the meaning of the human. And so my hope is, and I am hopeful here, is that the, the direction that Esalen is going now, at least, again, CTR, is that these will be fruitful conversations that will change how we even think about the human. I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I want to echo something that you said just to um, make it sink in for myself, too, because our conversation, you know, in, in part is to, uh, educate uh, our audience uh, of of the podcast, but also it's to educate me and to just because I'm sure you know in inside of this. But you said it's not just about diverse bodies; it's about diverse ideas that come from these diverse bodies. That's right. Right. So diverse yeah, ideas and, and experience. And that, to me, is sort of the antidote for the tokenization ideal. But, but that's typically the way diversity works, that we'll be more diverse when we have more bodies. But the structures don't change. Mm. The fundamental conversations don't change. How we understand the human doesn't change. How we understand what it means to do this work, this intellectual work, doesn't change. Diversity functions in a way that says we, we've made it when we've reached that 20%. And I want to see something much more fruitful and meaningful than just mere rearrangement of body in a particular set or institution. ask you about the mysticism and the esotericism in black religious thought that you that you teach about and what to you is um, bubbling up at this moment what's exciting for you in that work well I think what's exciting for me in the work of uh, mysticism and esotericism as it as it pertains to Africana community and African Americans in particular is, is the recognition that these communities have something to offer to these categories. If you, again, I, I, I have to talk about the people I know, the people I'm close to, I'm uh, constantly in conversation with. If, if you talk to folks like Biko Gray, 
for him, black experience is religious experience, right? And it's religious experience for him in a way that is mystical, going all the way back to the slave trade, right, where you had all these bodies dislocated in space, traveling from, from Africa to America, Europe, South America, this total dislocation, right, both uh, temporal dislocation and geographic location. And yet Biko Gray would argue that these folks who were from different communities, quote-unquote tribes, from, from different parts of Africa, developed a certain sociality and, and undifferentiated identity that he wants to understand as mystical. He posits, following uh, folks like Fred Martin and others, that black experience itself is mystical. And so when we talk about black religion, and of course not all scholars who study African-American religion are, are going to be on board with it, right? When, when, you, when you talk about African-American religion, most of them are going to take an institutional approach. Black religion is black Christianity, you know, black Islam, and so on. And, and what what uh, Gray and others are, are, are arguing here is that there's something basic to black experience that itself is religious and mystical. And so mm. these are the kind of things that, that I want to push as I engage in my own work, but also uh, as I engage in conversation with people like Hugh Page, who would argue that there are esoteric elements even to black life itself. And so, so black life itself as elements that are both mystical and esoteric. And so these are some of the directions that I'm trying to explore in my work that, that I think are gaining traction. And so in the, the work on scholarship that folks are doing in Western esotericism, both in Europe and America, they're beginning to recognize the significance of this and the significance of race, where they hadn't talked about race before. One of the things that I see is that it's, it's – it's, it's gaining traction in that community, right, those who do, who study esotericism and mysticism, but ironically, not necessarily among those, at least at this point, who study African-American religion. Now, that, mm -hmm. that seems like a contradiction and an irony, but that seems to be where we are. And, and if I may uh, probe a bit deeper, is the main reason that black culture is characterized by a certain esotericism is it because of the discontinuity that was created by having been enslaved and having been made to shift, uh, shift location that's, that's, time? That's certainly part of how some scholars want to understand the mystical aspect of it. Uh, it seems to me that in terms if, of, of esotericism, if we understand esotericism generally as the rejected knowledge in the West, knowledge that was uh, rejected, in response to or, or given the rise of, of uh, both the Christian West and the Enlightenment and so on, we, my colleagues and I, argue that not only uh, uh, should esotericism be understood as this rejected knowledge or this knowledge that in the West was cast to the wayside, is another term that you find in Western esotericism, but that there were rejected people, right? And as a quintessential rejected people, understanding anti-blackness as, as a major force in the West, I, Hugh Page, and others, Biko Gray and others, want to understand African-Americans 
as the esoteric of Western esotericism. So where Western esotericism focuses on rejected knowledge, the same thing that gives rise to uh, esotericism also rejected black people who also don't figure in and register in the discourses of, uh, of Western esotericism. In other words, then, uh, to repeat myself, we want to posit black people then as, as the secret of the West, the esoteric of the esoteric, so that black people, by their very presence in America, become the esoteric, who do not speak, right? They were constituted as objects, which means then they become the secret of the West. How does the paranormal fit in with this? I saw on your page on the, the LSU site, there's an interest, or there's at least a mention in UFOs, unidentified flying objects. How, does the, how do the subjects kind of uh, intertwine and, and commingle? Yeah, I've, I've been interested in UFOs for, for quite some time. I enter the subject of UFOs through the Nation of Islam, which I want to recast as as to use terms that people would understand, as a UFO religion. Now, the nature of Islam does not show up in any of the major volumes on UFO religion. And so if you'll, if you'll Google UFO religion, you'll see that there are texts published by that same term. There's an encyclopedia of UFO religion. There's all kinds of material. The nature of Islam doesn't show up in, in any of those uh, scholarly texts. Uh, and most African-American groups don't. I mean, there, there are maybe one called the Nuwabi, so the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors that show up. But for the most part, they don't. And yet the Nation of Islam argues that they were the ones who started the modern UFO phenomenon, right? They were founded in 1930. UFOs have been central to the group and how they understand themselves. And I've taken the idea of UFOs, which is, which is otherwise marginalized, and moved it more to the center. And I've argued that you can't even understand what the Nation of Islam is doing and saying without taking seriously the meaning of their UFO discourse. UFOs uh, among African Americans has its own tradition and has been around for at least as long as, I hate to use this term, but as mainstream ufology or the study of UFOs. Mm. And, and this is what the Nation of Islam has argued. Even though there are lots of traditions, not just the, Uf, uh, the Nation of Islam, the Nation of Islam argues that, that they were first, right? And that UFOs have always been an important part of how they see themselves and who they are. But there are many mm. other Uf, uh, black UFO traditions. Prophet Yahweh, who I think died in 2014, uh, believed he could call UFOs and summon them. And he could teach you how to call them, too. He had a UFO summoning school, right, where he could teach you how to do this. But even for him, the inhabitants of these vehicles were black, which is one of the distinctions 
dis- uh, distinctive feature of the black UFO tradition. It's, it's almost as if there's a sense of, of reversing this initial experience of the slave trade that you and I were talking about, right, and talking right. about that, that initial mystical experience, that contact with UFOs in some ways is contact with, with, with black origin, who black people really are, that they come from the cosmos. And this is why you don't find narratives about psychic sexual surgery, that these, for, for black people, aren't terrifying experiences. They're almost wholly friendly experience, right? And so I have yet to research this fully, but it's clear that it's a, that it's a different tradition and an important one in the study of UFOs in, in the United States. I love that metaphor, the making sense of it that, that you made and that for black people, these aren't terrifying experiences. It's the, the life within a culture built on racism that is the terrifying experience. And this is sort of like the... That's right. The, the making whole. That's, that's really, really that's interesting. Right. Well, there, there are two black women named Earlene and Shirlene who live in Texas. I think they live in Arlington uh, who wrote a book, right? They call themselves the UFO twins, and these are black women. Uh, and, and one of them claims a UFO experience where they encountered what they call galactics. But how did they describe the, the galactics? And this is a quote as beautiful black women, close quote, right? And so, again, there's a, there's a sense in, in the black traditions of the familiar that is much more akin to encountering helpful ancestors who help you both in this world to navigate this world and in the world to come. And, and in their book, uh, The UFO Twins, they talk about the term abduction. Right? So we talk about UFO abductions, right? That's the standard term. They, they want to jettison that language. They use the term trip, right? And why do they say you use the term trip? Because abduction is a negative experience. That's a negative term. And that wasn't our experience. I mean, that's, that's literally what they say in their book. We went on a trip. We weren't abducted. So it's a much more familiar and familial ex- experience of encounter with, with the other who is not really the other, but is us. Amidst this this moment, which is some sort of a galvanizing moment for mainstream culture as it attempts to apprehend its own racism, number one, do you think that, that it represents sort of like a sea change? Is this a, a watershed moment? But number two, if so, how does this moment affect your own intellectual inquiries going forward? Well, I can only answer number one about this being a watershed moment by saying I hope so and that it does feel there. But, but again, like I said initially, I'm cautiously optimistic, in fact, very cautiously optimistic. The, the second thing is it, it won't change my work at all 
while it might be a watershed moment for a lot of others, this is the kind of work I've been doing for the last decade. And so what it might mean is more attention to the kind of work that I do and, and others who do similar work. There aren't that many of us in terms of the paranormal and UFOs, esotericism, mysticism, those kind of categories. Uh, but, I, but I hope it means that people take it more seriously for what it tells us about the human and as such is more inclusive about the human and that it causes us to rethink the very category of human and, and mm. what it might actually mean. I want to ask you in a sort of a, an attempt to, um, to bring our conversation more to a, to a close is anything being overlooked in this moment in, in terms of the way our, our discussion of it, right? Because as, as our culture, we have this ADD quality where we hop from issue yep. to issue. You know, it's the Me Too movement for September and October. And then, we, you know, the pandemic is, you know, April, May, June. We have racism and police brutality. It is in the collective culture sites right now. But are we missing anything crucial because you sort of have a, a scholarly way of getting the big picture of it. Are we missing something crucial in our discussion? Well, I, I do have a scholarly way, but my perspective is also slightly pessimistic. And uh, in that, for me, what we might be missing is, is how the experiences, the very violent experiences, all, all various forms of violence are actually reproduced and sedimented structure. So we're talking about this moment in terms of sentiment, right? Sure, we've been racist. We need to do better. We need to talk a lot more. We need, we need diversity. We need more dialogue, right? That seems to be the, the thrust of the current conversation. We're not really talking about structures that enable racism and inequity, that stabilize and that reproduce it. And I want to talk much more about that because that's where the change is going to be. Right? We can't continue in the world as it's currently constituted and think we're going to get something different. Right? We have to take small steps and at least begin thinking about what a different world might look like fundamentally. Right? That isn't hierarchical when it comes to these social categories, the race, socioeconomic status, gender, and so on. But how might we envision a different world structurally that might ensure real democracy and egalitarianism. And for me, that's what's missing, and that's partly why I'm so skeptical. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I think that's really well put, yeah. And the skepticism is probably as, as well earned. Hmm. <laughs> what to you constitutes a generative discussion about race, class, and privilege? What, what, what is the discussion? How do generative and useful discussions about race happen? Well, uh, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough question to think about, you know, off, off the top of my head. I, I, yeah, I can say a little yeah, bit about yeah. what it's not, right? Please. What it's not are necessarily conversations about white privilege. I don't know that that gets us very far, right? I don't know that that gets us hardly anyway because, uh, I mean, we've been talking about those kinds of things for forever. The, the problem with the conversation is when they, when they come from white scholars and white thinkers, right, now they're, they're being seen as something to talk about and something to take seriously. 
And so even in these conversations, you still have a sort of reproduction of whiteness as, as truth and authoritative by D'Angelo and, uh, and white fragility. Right? The, the problem that I have with, with these texts and these conversations is, is that we take them serious, we privilege them, and we center them precisely because white people are not saying. And yet the, the everyday lives of black people who have been talking about this for the longest, the scholars who have been writing about it, for, from my perspective, in much better ways, much more robust, much fuller ways, still aren't part of these, these conversations. And their work is out there. And their voices are out there. And so we have to start to interrogate the, the very structures that allow us to, to hear some and not others, to see some and not others. And the conversations we've been having won't really get us there. I mean, again, I keep using the term fundamental. Even the very conversations have to change fundamentally, right, in terms of how they're structured and how we understand truth and who's authoritative and who can talk about this and who's to be trusted. And, and for me, we, we have to start thinking about that if we're really serious about this. Charles Long, who uh, uh, just died earlier this year, was an African-American scholar who was trained at the University of Chicago in the 1950s. What Charles Long argued is that if America really wants to see itself, if it really wants to transform, it has to see itself through Native Americans, African-Americans, and so on. Why? Because their experience would tell you what America actually has been. Not just what it, what it claims it's been, but what it actually has been. And that in that is the potential for, for, for transformation of America. Now, now, I hear Charles Long, and on some level, I, I agree with him, and I know, what, I know where he's going and what he was trying to argue. I, I think there's a lot of truth there. But, but I want to go further and say that, sure, Native Americans, African Americans, and other people, out of which, whose labor and bodies America has literally been constructed, hold some key to the transformation of America. But, but I want to suggest that America has to be something else that it hasn't envisioned. I want to see America be something other than, than, than America. Right? And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that world, that new world, that I want to see is much more egalitarian and, and, and democratic. I don't know what it looks like because we've never been there. And I don't know how we get there. But I do agree with him that if it's going to happen, we have to begin to center the experiences and voices of, of these communities that he mentioned. I think that's, a, that's absolutely brilliant insights. And I, and I, I appreciate uh, what you said, too, about this interesting fact that a book like White Fragility is taken so seriously that the conversation gets taken seriously by the mainstream culture when white people are talking about it you know that's something that had it had not really occurred to me um until you saw that and then too i also want to acknowledge the fact that in our conversation here you know this is i on behalf of the esalen institute and the person sort of inviting you on the show and conducting the interview and i hope that it's not disempowering for you my intention is for it to be educational like i am in the the seat of the person who's learning and you're the in the professor seat of course and i appreciate that 
But, but again, I want to point out that I, that I do think Esalen is really serious about this, about, about having conversations that lead to more than just a kumbaya moment, right? And that's why I participate <laughs> in these conversations, right? because I think they're real. I think they're meaningful. And, and as you said, the proof is in the pudding. It's the kind of thing that it sure it's, not going to be, it's not going to be solved by, um, by work that's done over several weeks more like work that's done over years, over decades. It's, it's not work that's actually going to happen and be meaningful, right, just by reaching for the 20%. Right? Yeah. It has to be more than that. Yes. Thank you for, those, uh, thank you for that thought. And thank you for this, this conversation, uh, Dr. Stephen Finley. It has been, it's been outstanding to talk to you. Well, I appreciate you, and I appreciate this time. Thanks for hearing me. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, and Kelly McKay. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.